personally, I I would go for the the aura ring because if I come back to that matrix that I spoke about in terms of like the value that it provides and then the friction or ease of use, I think what you see when you plot most devices on there is there's this linear relationship whereby something's more accurate, it's often harder to use. And that's what you have when you're in the laboratory. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have something that's like really easy to use. It's super simple, but it's not that accurate. So it's really not that useful. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. So today on the Pacey Performance Podcast, we have Shan Allen, who is Research Manager at Lululemon. So having spent time in pro sport, Shan decided to take a little bit of a right turn and join Lululemon. And it's a really interesting scenario that I think we're seeing in our industry of people working in pro sport, but wanting a change and moving into the commercial side while still getting their fix of pro sport involvement, but having that commercial environment from which to, to hone their craft. So it's this that we dive into with Shan today, and it's it's wearables. So it's looking at Whoop versus Aura, because that's a big thing that is dominating the questions that are coming out of not only the elite sport world, when looking at these types of wearables, but the consumer world as well. And Pete Tierney and Shan herself wrote a three-part series for Sportsmith on this exact topic. So we dive a little bit deeper into some of the issues that they brought up there when it comes to choosing and implementing wearable technology. So a superb episode coming up with Shan. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Satanta College. Led by Dr. Liam Hennessy, Satanta College provides coaches with the opportunity to take their career to the next level with qualifications in strength and conditioning and performance science. Satanta's blended learning approach ensures you have flexibility to continue your studies alongside your coaching practice. And lectures are delivered online with practical workshops held in locations across Ireland, the UK, the United States, India and South Africa. Courses are designed by experts in the field of sports science, including Professor Ian Jeffries and Des Ryan, with a focus on practically applying the most current methodologies in your day-to-day coaching. Applications are now open for the MSc in Performance Coaching and MSc in Applied Sport and Exercise Psychology, along with a range of strength and conditioning programs from certificate to degree level. Visit stantacollege.com for more information and how to apply. Samsung Equipment has been manufacturing elite strength equipment since 1976. Based in New Mexico, Samsung provides professional weight room solutions for those looking to lead the way in advancing our strength and conditioning profession. Being a direct manufacturer, the team at Samsung brings fully customization capabilities in not only branding, but in custom equipment needed to execute your programming. The Samsung team brings many years of experience, not only in coaching, but in manufacturing high quality strength equipment. So there is no vision too great. If you can dream it, they can build it. Find them on social media at Samsung underscore EQ. And for more information, visit their website, samsungequipment.com or email Andy at Andy at samsungequipment.com. 
And this episode is also sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. So without further ado, over to the episode with Sean. Sean Allen, welcome to the Pace Performance Podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Hi Rob, thanks for having me. Thank you very much. Very comfortable. As soon as you came on, I've never spoken to you in person, but as soon as you came on, North, English Northern accent, we're all right. Everyone's comfortable, <laughs> yeah. everyone's comfortable here. But anyone that doesn't know who you are, Sean, would you mind giving us a bit of a background on yourself? Yeah, for sure. Well, as you mentioned, I sort of grew up in the, the north of England, so grew up playing football. Um, actually played in the Women's Premier League when I was 16, 17, and then sort of thought, oh, this probably isn't going to be a full-time career at, at that point. So off I went to university to do sports science. And when I was doing my undergrad degree, I spent a, a placement year working at London Irish, so pro rugby. And then after that, I went to get my uh, master's in physiology. And then from there, I moved up to Scotland where I got my first job where I was working as a physiologist slash performance scientist, working mainly with the, the British swimming team up there. And I spent most of my time sort of collecting daily monitoring variables with them, you know, every day, morning, resting heart rate, blood glucose, creatine kinase, these kinds of things. And it was when I was there that I really started getting a sense of like, I have so much data from these athletes I know there are good things I can do with it but I don't necessarily have the data skills to be able to interpret it the right way and to know what to do with it to have the most impact and so that was really what prompted me to go and do my PhD and then I moved to New Zealand to do my PhD working with Will Hopkins and that was kind of all around data analytics statistical modeling of athlete performance data that kind of thing and I was lucky while I was there to keep working kind of in applied sport with the New Zealand swimming team and after I finished my PhD, I stayed on there for another three years, working again with the Olympic and Paralympic programs over there through to Rio. And then I sort of thought, oh, like I've done this for a couple of cycles now. I'm kind of interested in a bit of a new challenge. What would it look like to kind of step out of elite sport a little bit and into kind of a parallel industry? And that's when I moved to Canada to work with Lululemon at the innovation team here. So I've been there for four and a half years working kind of from a applied research and, and science perspective as part of the company and kind of the main uh, things that they do around sort of apparel and technology innovation. I certainly didn't have the background that you did prior to wanting to step out of pro sport but do something in parallel so you were kind of dipping in dipping out and also and, and still having that getting that fixed to, to a certain extent but what was what was your reason for wanting to do that? I think it was the challenge, to be honest, because once I'd done a couple of Olympic cycles, I'd worked in pro sport, I'd worked in England, I'd worked in New Zealand, I kind of had a sense of how the industry was. And I sort of knew like, you know, there'll be other Olympic cycles and I can always come back if I want to. But there's a whole other world out there of something that's completely different, something that's new, something that's challenging. And the thing for me was like, I didn't really know if I could do that. 
And that was like an amazing motivator for me. Like, can I do it? I almost want to put myself in that position to see if I can and kind of challenge myself to learn something new and to think about one of the main motivators for me as well was just think about how I can better apply science beyond just like the N equals one elite athlete. What, what does it look like to take some of the stuff that we know intuitively as sports scientists and try and scale that to touch like a million people or a billion people, for example. And that's another amazing challenge that I was super interested in as well. Yeah, I think it is so good. And, and more recently with, with Pete Tierney, who obviously you, you're working with and I knew prior to, prior to him moving over to Canada to work with you guys, it's so good to see people of your calibre, of Pete's calibre, who had the who have the role, had the roles that you had to then go, okay, what's next? What's the what's the big picture? I think it's really exciting for younger practitioners, more experienced practitioners, practitioners who've been around for 30 years, that there is these opportunities running parallel to elite sport that are super, super exciting and can have the impact that you've just described there. I think that's, to me, that would be a massive comfort if you're in elite sport and feeling a little bit, I don't know, what's next or a little bit trapped or where do I go from here type type feelings. Looking at you guys, just looking at um, you and Pete as, a, as great examples, there's some great opportunities there. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, I think if you'd asked me like when I was 25, are you going to go and do this? I would say no, like I love sport. I'm going to be in sport forever. And then I sort of got to a point where I was like, hey, what else is out there? You know, you just become like intuitively curious about the world. And I think the biggest thing I would say to people who are in that position, maybe feeling stuck or not or not knowing where to go is that the skills you have as a sports scientist are so transferable, like way more transferable than I ever knew possible. Um, and oftentimes that does set you like a step ahead of other people because you have this like really deep applied experience, experience of working in high pressured environments with lots of different people from lots of different backgrounds. And those skills are so valuable in other worlds as well. So um, I think that for me, if I'd had that confidence that I have now earlier, maybe I would have made that move earlier. So that's the biggest thing I would say to people who are maybe in that position right now. Mm -hmm. Good call. Right, let, let's let's dive in. So recently, you did a you and Pete collaborated on a, a three part series of articles on Sportsmith about wearables, and that's where we're going to take this bit of a conversation here. But what led me to? I think I contacted maybe contacted Pete initially. I oh, know contacted you when you collaborated with Pete around the Whoop versus Aura because that was a thread that you'd one of many great threads that you're currently putting out on on Twitter. Congratulations on that by the way because they they're great. Um but what is the benefit of a practitioner like yourself going through the process and the the not only the process of comparing tech but just exposing yourself to technology over a period of time to to draw some conclusions before it actually goes into a a team environment or an athlete environment because it seems that you're not only and just using that example the whoop versus aura you're not wearing them two devices for a week you're wearing them devices for a long time to draw these conclusions of which one you would steer someone down in, in various different um di different situations so my question is what benefit to practitioners is there to go down that route and put the time in when it comes to wearable tech yeah i always think i mean whether it's wearable tech or any kind of intervention like i'm the kind of person where i'm like i don't want to recommend something to someone without being prepared to do it and try it myself and oftentimes with wearable tech we're asking athletes to wear it for a whole season or longer so in that case maybe there are some things that you don't see if you only wear it for a week 
Um, what would it look like to actually put yourself in the shoes of those athletes and do what you're asking them to do before you ask them to do it? And I mean, I think me doing something like that um, helps me evaluate the utility of the technology, whether you would recommend it to someone, whether you would stand behind it. And I think about it from the perspective of two axes almost. And the first one is the the value that it provides. And that speaks to like the accuracy that it, of, of the data, which sometimes you can only see over a long period of time. And then the, the value in terms of like, can I take something I'm seeing from it? Am I able to make a change to my behavior and actually see that reflected in the data and know that I've improved something? And, you know, that's something you can't really do in a, in a week again. So you need that kind of long-term investment. And then the other axis is... Um, what I talk about is, is friction or ease of use, how easy is it to use basically. And again, that's something where you might wear it for a night and it's perfectly fine, but you start to wear it for a month, two months. And those little things that maybe annoyed you about it, they get to the point where it's like, oh, this is too frustrating. I'm going to take it off or, you know, I'm, I'm, I've forgotten to charge it and then that's it. I've just done with it, that kind of thing. And I think it's, it's basically the things that the athletes would pick up if you were putting them in those positions anyway. And by you doing it and you wearing it, you have that sense of empathy. And even if they come with these problems, once you've recommended it to them, either they they know that you've been through it as well. So you have that kind of connection or you're able to provide them with like a solution that you found yourself and you can kind of troubleshoot things. And so it doesn't end up with them just throwing it in the bin because, you know, the first time it does something they don't like, it's it's off the wrist or whatever. So dive into that Whoop versus Aura article, which I said to you before is, I have to confirm this, but specifically in the first week of release is definitely the most popular article we've had on Sportsmith so far. And if you put Whoop versus Aura into into Google, there's so many, so much out there of people asking that question, which is why it landed so well, because it was a great article. What was the process that you went down to evaluate these two bits of tech? Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because that that was almost the genesis for me even like putting this out there in the first place. It was because I used to get this question on almost a daily basis from just friends that I had of nothing to do with sports science. But these technologies are becoming more and more kind of ubiquitous and, and commonplace and people see the marketing and they're like, oh, which which one should I choose? And I thought, you know, we're not all privileged to have a background in sports science to be able to um, look at these with more depth and see like where the, where the truth might be and that kind of thing. So that was almost the, the stimulus for, for doing it. But the process that I went through was um, thinking back to like the sort of validity experiments that you would typically do on any technology, but what would it look like to wear two devices at once? And I was actually wearing three because I was wearing the Apple Watch as well. And like compare what, what values is it giving me day in, day out, which one is more useful, which one is more useful for what, because they, they do measure different things. And just to have like a fully informed breakdown to be able to say, you know, oftentimes when people ask what technology should I use, my answer is often, you know, this frustrating answer of it depends because it depends what your goal is, what you're trying to achieve. And they do do different things. They work differently for different people. And so I wanted to basically have, try and have as comprehending, comprehensive understanding of that as possible. So I was in a position to make those recommendations for people. And then the other thing that I really wanted to do, which kind of harks to my background of, of data analytics and that kind of thing, is dive deep into the data and try and figure out a little bit more of what's under the hood, like 
these sort of readiness and recovery scores that they're presenting, what's behind them. So if I can understand them a bit more, I'm in a better position to be able to explain to people why you should pay attention to it or why you shouldn't pay attention to it because of X, Y, and Z. So it's really that curiosity of trying to understand what it is that you're dealing with when you're having those conversations with athletes and coaches. We'll dive into them a little bit later on, but give us a bit of an overview of the of the differences and similarities of, of these two bits of tech, which are obviously marketing juggernauts at the minute. Um, you know, they're absolutely everywhere. So what are the what are the main differences? What are the main similarities? Yeah, so I guess the first one is the form factor. So the aura is a ring, so it goes on your finger. And then whoop is a wristband and they've also released um kind of clothing and other things recently so you can wear it on different areas of the body and that is interesting because there are obviously different considerations with accuracy of measurement that kind of thing at those different sites on the body and also related to the friction point that i mentioned earlier like something on your finger you almost forget it's there after a while versus on your wrist it's a bit more bulky some people have trouble sleeping with it that kind of thing so that's the first thing in terms of the form factor and then in terms of what it measures, Aura has tended to focus more on like sleep, recovery, heart rate variability, those kinds of things. Whereas Whoop are also interested in the, they call it strain, or it's almost like the training load, exercise load that you're putting on yourself and then how you're recovering from that. Um, and so there are some things that each device does well, I would say. So again, it comes back to the, what, what are you looking for? Um, I think from an accuracy perspective, from the data that I've looked at, from the research that I've read, from what I've heard from other people, um, Aura is kind of a bit stronger on those metrics that it, it does um, dive into. So the HRV, the kind of sleep stuff, it also has body temperature, which is nice for things like illness tracking, um, the menstrual cycle tracking, that kind of thing. But Whoop have just released their um, latest version of their product, which also has body temperature. So they're becoming kind of much of, much of a muchness on, on some of these things. Um, and then there's obviously the activity counts, step counts, those kinds of things. Um, I think what I did see from comparing the two, again, looking at the data, I saw many more inaccuracies in the heart rate data from Whoop, which um, was interesting because that's almost like one of the underlying, that's almost like the underlying signal that goes into many of their other metrics. So if your PPG data, your heart rate data isn't good, then your heart rate variability data is gonna be compromised. And then their strain and recovery algorithms that are based on some of these things are also gonna be compromised. So when you have a source of error and then you turn it into another metric, that error just compounds and grows bigger and bigger and bigger. So it comes back to like that raw data stream being super accurate. And um, I mean, I think there are many factors that go into that in terms of someone's circulation could be different at the point they're wearing it on the wrist versus the finger and these things could be things that just showed up for me which is why I would encourage people to test them themselves test them on the athletes they they want to work with to see what works best for people depending on the goals that they have. Am I right in thinking they calculate HRV slightly differently? Yeah so um when I tested it, they, the algorithm that they were using was calculating HRV from five-minute periods during the night. And those five-minute periods were determined by their sleep staging algorithm. So they were measuring it during your deepest phase of sleep. And this sleep. is Woo. Yeah, this is Woo. Okay. And yep. so that was interesting because 
we know that the accuracy of detecting those sleep stages isn't great. It's around 60% if you look at some of the research. And so that there's a source of error in that, meaning that they may not be calculating it at the same time each day in a, in a standardized fashion. And so there's, there was just another source of error in that, which showed up in some of the values, I think, that, that I saw. Um, but they've since changed that algorithm, which they did quite quietly. They sort of didn't publicize it, just showed up on their website. So I'm not sure when they did it, how much change it's had on people's values. You might be able to see it if you've been collecting data for a while. And now they've changed it to calculating over the whole night. But they have a what they call a dynamic weighted algorithm. So they're giving potentially more weighting in their algorithm to values in periods of deep sleep than in periods of other sleep. So there's still the same sort of problem of that compounding error as before. We just have less idea of how much it affects the, the variables, basically. So it's a bit of a black box in, in that sense. And then Aura, they just have something quite simple where they take the average of HRV throughout the whole night. So that's something where the error sort of like evens out over time and you have something that's standardized. So it is easier to compare over time. When they change the algorithm, do they... Does that alter retrospective data so it all syncs or is it just cut? And... Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the unknowns. I okay. assume not, but okay. that's one. Of, that's one of the sort of caveats I would always say to people adopting this technology of, you know, you're almost in the hands of the manufacturer or the company. If they decide to change something in these metrics, you might not even know it's happening for one. And then two, they might change things retrospectively or they might not. So having a good relationship with them or having some transparency or ownership over the data is super important. Otherwise, you might find you've been tracking something and making decisions on it for a while. And then suddenly it's all uh, thrown out the window. How easy is it to actually get answers from these guys as, a, as yeah. an individual and as an organization, as a, as a team? I think it, I imagine it's much easier if you have a trusted contact there and you've gone to uh, the trouble of trying to build up that relationship and sort of making it mutually beneficial in terms of providing feedback back to them. I think because what you mentioned earlier, they are such big companies and they do have such broad kind of market reach there. Their products are for the, the general public as well. You know, they don't often have maybe the time or the motivation or the incentives to respond to every single individual query. Um, so they're not necessarily motivated to do that. So I think if you can find like a trusted contact there, uh, that's probably the best way to be able to get some kind of transparency or, or answers um, and create long-term relationships. And what was the data like during exercise for both of these bits of tech? Yeah, so Aura, like they are releasing a feature, I think this year with okay. heart rate tracking, but they didn't have heart rate tracking during exercise at the time. So uh, the solution, well, that I sort of used moving forward was using the Apple Watch with the Aura Ring. And in all the research and in the testing that I did, that device as a PPG, like wrist-based device, has been the most accurate for heart rate tracking during exercise. Um, a lot of what I saw in Whoop was it would be good if you were doing like a steady state activity. If I went for a run for 30 minutes, let's say, like the values were believable. Um, but if you are using it in the gym, in a circuit or anything like that, like it wasn't very good at picking up those like smaller changes in, in heart rate. And I mean, I think it's harder for those devices in general anyway, but oftentimes after doing like a high intensity interval training workout, it, the strain score it would give me would be really low because it hadn't picked that up. And obviously we know that that's not true and heart rate isn't a great metric for that anyway. But then 
all in all, if that's what it's basing kind of strain and recovery scores on, it's it's missing quite a bit. So you you just have to be wary, I think, when you're looking at some of these devices of like, what is it not showing me? What is it not telling me? And just being aware of the, the limitations and maybe cherry picking some of the things that are more useful and are more accurate. So to get the information that you use to make these comparisons, will you get anything that isn't readily available to anyone? It's It's all there for anyone to get to make the comparisons that you did? Yes, I mean, this is one of the other points of difference between these two companies specifically. Um, Aura has a cloud-based website where you can go in and click export your data. It goes to a CSV and you get the daily metrics for all of the variables in there. Whereas Whoop, as far as I'm aware, they don't have that feature right now. So what I had to do with Whoop was basically just manually record the values um, from the app. I think there is an API if you have technical people who can sort of pull data that way, but that's obviously not accessible to, to most people. So what that meant is the data that I could get out of Whoop was much more limited, um, but I was able to sort of record the daily HRV, heart rate values, those kind of things to make some of those comparisons. So I'd say it's possible. Some companies make it easier than others, which um, especially if you're working with athletes and you want to be looking at raw data and maybe like making some of your own inferences away from their proprietary metrics. Like I would always lean towards the companies that make data more accessible and are more transparent about what they have available and, and make it easy for you. Before I ask the big questions of firstly, which one in various different situations and why have these companies got the the power that they have? Um, one thing I wanted to ask you was on the menstrual cycle tracking and the potential illness tracking before it before it happens as you as you um did a thread on it again i think the menstrual cycle tracking how could that be potentially used for athletes working with with female athletes yeah coaches I mean, working I, with like, female athletes sorry oh yeah yeah so i think both of those like the underlying metric that i found most useful was body temperature and that that sort of underpins both of those. And so for menstrual cycle tracking, what I would say or what I've seen from the, the research is there's around 80-ish percent accuracy for being able to classify whereabouts someone is in their menstrual cycle. But that's provided that they have a regular cycle, which maybe many athletes or less athletes do than the, the general public. And so the thing that I think is really interesting in that is these may be conversations that might be like taboo or really hard to have for coaches, but perhaps the data is almost a trigger or a jumping off point to have some of those conversations around like, oh, we have a little bit of objective data to say maybe something's going on that, you know, seems like a bit of a, a yellow flag, let's say. Maybe you want to have a deeper conversation with a nutritionist or a physiologist or whoever, or it just starts that conversation around really understanding like this is where I am in my cycle this is how I feel it starts to build that I think awareness perhaps in the athletes in a way that maybe hasn't been considered before and so I definitely don't think it's a case of like oh data says this you're at this phase of the cycle so do this I think it's more of that tool to as a trigger to start a conversation on one hand and then on the second hand I think it could be a way to help prime people's awareness and help them learn a little bit more about themselves. And again, from this like individualized perspective of like, for me, my cycle is a bit more like this at this time, maybe I feel a bit like this. So you're sort of trying to triangulate that context that you have and the behaviors that you have with what you're seeing in the data to see if you can see any patterns for you. 
and get to know yourself a little bit better as an athlete and the things that work for you and the things that don't. So I think that's where it's at right now. There's a lot of potential, but definitely like putting all your eggs in one basket and kind of going too far down that track. I wouldn't recommend that at this point either. And the illness side of things as well? Yeah, so one of the things I I think is interesting with all these kinds of metrics is there are two types of them. There's like leading metrics where they tell you before something's happened that it's going to happen and then there's lagging metrics which tell you after something's happened um, what's going on so that might be like the kind of like soreness or muscle damage or how you're recovering from a workout whereas what I've been able to see and what some of the the research has shown for like COVID for example that temperature can be this kind of leading indicator of when you're getting sick before you've had a test to prove it and so I definitely saw that. And it, it's, it's interesting with temperature because the kind of the magnitude of deviations that you see are so big when something's going wrong that they couldn't possibly be explained by anything else. Whereas you might see a little bit of a jump in resting heart rate, HIV might dip, but then you could look at those and be like, oh, well, I just trained a bit hard yesterday. So they're down or I'm dehydrated or, you know, there are many other reasons that sort of confound why those variables might be changing. Whereas the body temperature for me was such a big um, step change that it was it was obvious that there was something going on and then bringing all the other variables in helped me kind of piece it together so I think body temperature could potentially be really useful um, in, from that perspective of being like a leading metric for maybe not even illness prediction but something that I think could be interesting in the kind of sports performance setting is you know we all have those athletes who are like I'm fine I'll train through it that kind of thing or like, oh, I'm really sick. I can't do it today. And then you look at the data and you're like, well, are you? Or, you know, it just gives you that kind of like other point of evidence in that conversation to say, you probably need this today or you, you probably need that um, based on which athlete you have in front of you and how they typically kind of try and respond to things. And, and both Whoop and Aura have body temperature as a given metric? Yeah, so Whoop have added it now in their latest version. Aura had it in the previous version. So in the comparison that I did, Whoop didn't have it. It was just Aura, but now Whoop have it. So that's like that's another thing with this kind of stuff as well. Like things are moving so fast in this industry. Things are changing all the time. You almost have to be on top of like this company's added this or they've got this new algorithm, that kind of thing. And like it's good. Sometimes it's good that things change because you get new features and sometimes it's bad as we spoke about before and the things that you were relying on in the past have now disappeared or changed and that kind of thing. And there's so much cash on the line that these companies will have so many developers working on it 24-7 that things do will be be changing overnight on a regular basis. Yeah, well, I guess it's, it's the dynamics of being like a, a business you respond to where the market is and what people want and if one thing is more valuable then yeah it, make, it makes perfect sense and I think maybe that's where at least if you have a contact at some of these companies you can be in the conversation with them and they might say oh this is coming in six months so you can either prepare for it or try and come to a solution with them that still works for you because I, I think to your point there is a lot of profitability still in the, the sports world I mean we're starting to see now I've seen in the NFL and in the NRL in Australia, they're almost like live streaming players' heart rates, live streaming players' data during the games, which is interesting from a number of perspectives, but they're starting to get into that like monetization of athletes' data, which has many pros and cons for us as kind of sports performance practitioners. Like imagine you could see what the other team's heart rates are before they like go to take a penalty. Like 
how would you change your tactics differently because of that? Or you can see when some of their players might be getting tired in the same way as you can see it now for your own athletes. So there's, there's all sorts of considerations with that. But I think there is some incentive for these companies to do things that support sports performance because of some of those ways in which they will make money through athlete data in the future. So it's not like a completely lost cause. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Shan. Hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two, we have a little chat around choosing and analyzing the metrics that matter and how we get to that point without wasting time on metrics basically that don't matter. So a really interesting and super, super useful for the every practitioner coming up with Shan. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. iMeasureU is used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident which includes ultra-high G capabilities to quantify high-impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer-life battery to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions, and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. iMeasureU, now part of Vicom, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, the US Department of Defense, and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, head over to their website, imeasureu.com, or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. And this episode is also sponsored by Black Box Fitness. Black Box Fitness are leaders in performance training equipment and facility design. Blackbox are specialists in designing and building performance facilities for sports teams and strength and conditioning coaches. Blackbox manufacture and distribute a full range of strength training equipment from their headquarters in Belfast right across Europe. If you want to learn more about Blackbox, check out their website blackboxfitness.com or follow them on social media at blackboxfitness. And now back to the interview with Sean. So if you were gonna, if you were in an organisation, uh, football club, rugby club, working with swimmers, whatever it might be, taking all that into consideration, what you've just we've spoke about for the last twenty minutes, what would, what which way would you be leaning towards? Would you be investing if it was your cash? Would you be investing in the Aura route, or would you be going with Rory McIlroy and his whoop? <laughs> yeah I mean like high level it really depends the, the, on the key things that your athletes are trying to get out of it the big questions that they have but if if you were to sort of um chain me to the, the wall and ask me to spend the money then personally I I would go for the the aura ring because if I come back to that matrix that I spoke about in terms of like the value that it provides and then the friction or ease of use I think what you see when you plot most devices on there is there's this linear relationship whereby something's more accurate it's often harder to use and that's what you have when you're in the laboratory and then on the other end of the spectrum you have something that's like really easy to use it's super simple but it's not that accurate so it's really not that useful and so the only like the main device that I see that's sort of been able to deviate from that line is Aura whereby they have a good amount of accuracy for the things that they measure 
and they also have like low friction in that it's easy to use you sort of forget it's there you don't have to charge it that often it's easy to sleep with that kind of thing I mean it's not perfect like you shouldn't technically wear it for weightlifting that kind of thing it doesn't measure some things in exercise so I definitely think that no one device does everything but on balance if you're working in sports performance you're probably monitoring workouts or exercise through like GPS or something anyway so this gives you um, some of those other variables you know when you're not you don't have the athletes in front of you and it does it in a fairly low friction kind of easy to use way so that would be my kind of like blanket recommendation for people but I, w- I would still say like it's worth trying out all of them so maybe some people like different things that kind of thing it's definitely not the like be all and end all so that's not my final question on the whoop and aura but it encapsulates other wearables as well and that's the proprietary algorithms like the the uh, what is it whoop you strain and recovery recovery um and obviously aura will have have them as well as other wearables do as well how and you've mentioned it already but how careful do we need to be when we're actually using these not only for ourselves coaches individual general population but using them to guide what our athletes do or don't do yeah i think you sort of touched on it there when you said like they are almost shiny objects that are made to create engagement with the the mass market and i think there's a level at which they're useful for kind of like joe public who, who doesn't know what HRV is or how to deal with it. So they've turned it into this one simple score on a scale from zero to a hundred typically that, you know, they're easy, they can easily understand. But I think that's almost the danger for the sports performance practitioner um, in terms of like simplifying something down that you don't necessarily know what's contributing to it because you don't know uh, like mechanistically, where is this score coming from? A score of 90 could be like, what's the HRV, what's the sleep, like you don't, you don't know what the raw metrics are that go into it because of the way they've calculated it. But I think the main um, kind of challenge that I have for these scores is that we don't have any evidence to say that they predict anything that we care about. So if my readiness score is 90, does that mean I'm going to score three goals on the weekend or I'm going to produce a particular amount of power as a cyclist? And so it's telling me, is it telling me something that I don't already know from the other metrics or something that I can't figure out more easily by just asking myself, how do I feel? And maybe that data exists, it hasn't been published yet or it's in the process of being collected, but I have, I certainly haven't seen any of it to say like, yes, I should rely on this metric more than what I know about resting heart rate or HRV, which are things that we can more easily understand as practitioners. We can understand the mechanisms behind them and what it means if it's high or low versus like, an abstract score that we don't understand where it's came where it's come from or what it what it's really telling us so when i think about the best ways to use these potentially in in sports performance uh one of the nice things it does is because it is one score if you have a squad of 50 athletes you can almost use it as a traffic light system like if it's really high then you know this athlete's probably fine there's nothing going on if it's really low there's probably something going on with this athlete. That's when you want to dive deeper into their data and find out, well, what is it? Is it their HRV? Is it their body temperature? And maybe you have a conversation with them. And so it does that screening process for you. Um, the other thing I, I think, and I've heard of other people doing is finding ways to kind of create their own dashboard systems and just hide them from view of the players and, and coaches and just look at the raw data because 
like I don't know I've had sort of many criticisms of these data points but even then when I open my app like I look at those scores and I'm like oh because because they're designed to do that to capture human attention and you have to like stop yourself from from doing that and it's natural so if you can hide them that potentially makes it easier for you as a practitioner to not even have those conversations in the first place one thing that I think you highlighted in the the third of the three-part uh article series was this almost obsession that we've got of um, accuracy and reliability and validity and it's got to be if if the athlete sleeps seven hours 36 minutes the tech has got to say seven hours 36 minutes when actually if it said seven hours 30 would probably all good like if it says two hours we're probably struggling but like obsessing over this like getting everything absolutely perfect when we don't actually in this instance we don't actually need to be perfect other tech we may need to be perfect but this doesn't so it's understanding where to pick your battles and where to understand that that's actually good enough and i suppose that fits into this this the sleep tracking um world as well yeah i think it's that trade-off that i spoke about about accuracy and ease of use oftentimes if you're looking for accuracy you know the opportunity cost of that is you're missing something that's easier to you making it easier for people so you're costing them time or you're costing them energy or costing them money which those currencies are super important for performance as much as as much as accuracy is so it's really that trade-off um and i think alongside that there's this concept that we're familiar with in training when we think about like minimum effective dose of training like I think about it along similar lines where we want to understand what's the minimum acceptable accuracy for how we're trying to use it. Is it, do we really need to know down to the minute, as you say, how well someone slept or is it more useful to know that they went to bed at 10 PM or they went to bed at 1 AM because, you know, we can actually do something meaningful about that and see if it, it changes. And um, so it's really understanding like what's that threshold for you where you're still able to get information that's useful without making it super taxing or super hard for the athletes to actually get the data because you know if you have no data it doesn't matter how accurate the device is if someone can't be bothered to wear it because it's it's too hard to use so I think there's there's that trade-off and I think um, another way to think about it potentially is the way that um, sort of clinical um, people approach these things where they have like a two-phase approach use data like this as a screening tool to say like we have 50 athletes in a squad maybe there's something up with five of them because their scores are sort of higher um let's take those five athletes and then let's put them into a lab and hook them up to wires and measure their sleep because they really have problems with sleep whereas the other 45 players will leave them alone because they don't really have any problems so it's like where do you need to go deeper can you use these wearables as a tool to find that out and then save yourself a lot of time and effort on measuring 50 people if you can only measure five people. Mm-hmm. You mentioned HRV quite a bit during the last half hour. And that's obviously one of the key metrics that goes into WHOOP, like you mentioned, and their um, readiness scores. Then there's obviously sleep. So you've got HRV and sleep, two big things. You're spending, I don't know how much an aura ring is, 300, 300 pounds. Four hundred dollars, yeah, that ballpark, yeah, yeah, something like that. So, but there is options available to get both these things independently. Maybe not as shiny and 
we're not going to get a, an advert on Instagram like peppering me every five minutes to, to buy one. But there is cheaper options, great options to measure HRV, especially. Uh, and you mentioned it in the article, HRV for training. So there is options out there that, like I say, maybe not as shiny and fancy, but do do a great job. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great one that you mentioned. And that's if you have a smartphone and you buy the app, which is which is cheap, you can use the smartphone camera. So it's basically free. If you want to be more accurate, you can get a heart rate strap, which they're maybe $100 to get like a Polar H10, which is sort of a, a gold standard as it were. So if that's the primary metric that you're interested in, which is a really good one, then yeah, it's 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 much simpler than it was 10, even 10, 15 years ago, that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, there are plenty of great options available that don't have to cost an arm and a leg. So just going back to the point of choosing metrics that, that really matter, whatever, whatever wearable it is, what would your process be upon purchasing a, or a ring or a GPS system? What would your process be to actually try to get to the point where you have the metrics that really matter and not just kind of blanket approach let's let's get everything because I've, I've spoken to quite a few people on the podcast recently and it's interesting to to kind of map that over the last five or six years of speaking to people and there seems more of a trend now of like re- reduction massive reduction like we, we used to do 10 now we do four we've just cut because we didn't know really what we were doing, but we've kind of found our feet now, and it's these core things that we're that we're looking at. Can we fast track that without going through those five or six years of of practice to get to the metrics that really matter quickly? Yeah, I mean, I think about it in terms of one of the ways in which this kind of stuff is most useful is it's not necessarily going to be the the silver bullet or. It's not going to get you there overnight, but what it can do is it can make you like a little bit less wrong in some of those decisions that you're making, which over time that starts to compound and go from like tiny things that you maybe wouldn't necessarily see to when you put them together, that's when you see the kind of big changes that we're starting to see now. So in terms of can we shortcut that, I think maybe with a, a few simple things you can, but overall probably like what you're working to do is to be that little bit less wrong in those decisions that like over time you're not going to see like oh this person doesn't get injured tomorrow but maybe over years that those injury rates start to go down or, or whatever it is and that's the that's the compounding effect I think that we're looking for and so that's how I sort of advocate whether or not you want to keep something like does it help you make a decision that you couldn't have made before does it save you time in that decision does it save you energy or does it save you money and I think on, on that one you know like manually 10 years ago I was taking blood samples to collect glucose from people and testing it in a machine like that's pretty expensive if you do that over time versus like now you can use a continuous glucose monitor maybe it's less accurate in some ways but you're saving um on in other ways so it's like that trade-off those opportunity costs like are you a club with lots of money and like that's not a thing or are you working in olympic sport where you don't have a lot of money and that's really important so it really depends on where you are what kind of currencies you want to maximize what that cost benefit analysis is but i think the the compounding over time definitely is is something that is uh most beneficial from like trying these things and, and testing them and figuring out like 
oh, this is useful, I'll take this bit from it. These things aren't useful, I'll throw them away. And you kind of only really figure that out, I think, through trying it yourself and seeing what works on the ground. Mm-hmm. One thing I'm really keen to get your view on is the future of wearable tech, given the role that you're in, obviously not dive into anything specifically what with what you guys are doing, but just generally as an industry, what is what do you think the future is? Next five, ten years, what are we going to see burst onto the market, if anything? Yeah, I think there's a few different um, ways to slice this. I think the first one is we'll see new variables, so new things that we can measure sort of passively through wearable tech. So we're starting to see blood glucose now through continuous glucose monitors. Um, There's a company that's saying we'll be able to do that for lactate fairly soon. So those blood lactate tests will be able to get continuous blood lactate. Um, We'll also be able to measure potentially things about neurophysiology and the brain, brain activity in new ways, which is an area that hasn't really been tapped into as much as, you know, many of the other physiological variables. So that might help with like how people are making decisions, how they're responding subjectively or emotionally to particular things that are that are going on. Um, and then I think the other kind of development we'll start to see is in the hardware. So like new form factors for these kind of things, they'll sort of get smaller and more invisible. So they'll maybe go from a wristwatch to something that you can implant under your skin. You can't even necessarily see it's there. It stays there all the time. You know, you don't have to take it off. You might see like tattoos or kind of like um, patches that you can put on your skin that sit under your clothes. So again, you don't necessarily know they're there and collecting data, which perhaps that brings up all sorts of problems for like sports governing bodies and these kinds of things in terms of what you can and can't wear during competition. Um, but I think we'll, we'll start to see those things. And then on the sort of software side, we'll probably start to see more of these metrics showing up, as I said, like on TV as fan engagement metrics. But what does that mean for practitioners who are now have their athletes data broadcast to the world and you can also see like the other team's data or the other athletes data like how are you going to use that or how are you going to um, change what you do to so that your athletes data isn't giving away something about how you're approaching a game or, or something like that so I think there's there's a lot of things like that but at a high level what we'll really see is just more and more data and so being able to pass like signal from noise and know where to look is just going to be more and more important so like those high level skills that I think a lot of us have and develop as kind of sports performance practitioners versus the general public who are just going to be overwhelmed with like places to look and and not know what to do so I, I like to speak to that point about um these metrics showing up on uh, t- in, in TV and that kind of thing and what we spoke about at the beginning in terms of like different a- career avenues for sports science practitioners like I think there's a big place for sports scientists to become almost like commentators on some of these games and start to explain like this player's heart rate is this this is what it means expert um, because, opinions yeah because yeah. right now you know we have the pundits that we have aren't necessarily skilled enough to be able to do that whereas like imagine the value you'd get from a sports scientists to be able to explain that to people and sort of uh, educate people on some of the data that these these metrics and these wearables are producing. I know this is quite a hard question to answer, but are leagues, governing bodies ahead of the game when it comes to the, the tech that's coming down the track? Like like you say, that patches, tattoos, thing under the skin, like are they ready for that kind of thing to deal with these kind of developments? Are they... Again, impossible to answer now, but working with Aura, with Whoop for the next thing that's coming down the 
coming down the track so they can get attack it up front or not? Yeah, I mean, I imagine some of them are, but I also imagine, you know, these organizations have their own limitations and many other fish to fry, so they don't have the, the resources to be like that far ahead of the game. I imagine with the ones that are kind of popular now, so like a whooping or like they're in a lot of conversations. I know with the NBA and those kinds of things and some of the players are saying, I want to wear them because they're beneficial. Some players are saying, I don't want to wear them because what if people use the data against me when I'm trying to get my next contract and that kind of thing. So those conversations are happening too. But in terms of like the companies building these like implantables or tattoos, like I think that a lot of them are new companies that, you know, won't really be on anyone's radar yet. And they'll sort of, they'll just start to grow. And so there's probably like so much in that space that is very hard for these organizations to keep keep track of unless they're, you know, like a, a a big organization with a good strategy around it. Maybe someone like a FIFA, for example, is able to do that. But many other sports probably don't have the capacity or capability to kind of keep pace with it in that way. How do you keep pace with these things that are coming down the track? Yeah, I think it's just that kind of innate curiosity of following leads of like what shows up in the scientific research, because oftentimes that's you know like that's where a lot of these things are generated before being turned into like products or hardware and that kind of thing and then just like networks of people who are in the kind of technology space um trying some of these things out because i mean once once they build them they need to test them with someone so there's always there's always people kind of testing these things and um looking at how the the science actually shows up in them so there's a few different networks like that but yeah i mean honestly there's there's so so much of it that um it's hard to keep pace with them until they kind of appear and then some of them disappear after a while (laughs) so yeah you got to give them a bit of time to see if they stick around and if they're actually useful so what would be your recommendations for the practitioners who feel like they want to stay ahead of the game with this kind of stuff um i think it's just about um there are a few sort of conferences and that kind of thing where some of these things show up that are maybe more outside of sport but in the technology space so like ces the consumer electronics show every year sort of in las vegas that's like january sort of time is where a lot of these things tend to show up first and then i mean from the scientific research side again a lot of it is outside of the typical sports science literature um but it's it's a lot of it comes from like or i mean a lot of where the money is for many of these things is in health well-being like pharmaceutical industry that kind of thing so like keeping an eye on some of what's going on in those industries or having speaking to people who are in those industries for example and then you can start to see like some of them get applied to sport in different ways or there are bits and pieces from what they're doing that you might want to pull in into what you're doing so i think it's probably about like having branching out of sport a little bit and having a bit of that network in in different places so you can start to get a bit of a lead on some of these things that are maybe coming down the pipe going back to what we said right at the start keeping keeping out what's going on the parallels parallels outside elite sport yeah 100 percent. i mean if you if you just stay kind of inside that bubble and you're doing the same things as everyone else how can you sort of expect to beat them that's always how i've thought about it so the more you can do to sort of triangulate interesting things from different industries and different analogs i think you're starting to get one step ahead so definitely recommend that absolutely shan i'm gonna let you go but i'm gonna say thank you very much first and also where can people follow up with you where can people find out more about your work your twitter threads because like i say they're they're great and i encourage people to to follow you over there what's the best place 
yeah, I mean, I think the best place is just on Twitter. So it's Dr. Sharon Allen on Twitter. And yeah, feel free to reach out, send me a message if there's, there's anything on there that catches your eye. And otherwise, yeah, I'll just be posting some of these things as they <laughs> come across my desk and some of my own data as I try and make sense of it. So yeah, continue sharing there. That's probably the best place for people to find me. Awesome. Shan, thank you very much. Have a great rest of the day and we'll definitely keep in touch and, and speak soon. Yeah, thanks, Rob. It's been a pleasure. Cheers, Sean. See you. Thanks for tuning in to episode 391 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Big thanks to Sean for spending 45 minutes an hour talking about wearable technology. If you haven't checked out the three-part series on Sportsmith, head over to sportsmith.co forward slash articles and you can see that and have that have a read of that there. Big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, iMeasureU, Black Box Fitness, Samson Equipment and Satanta College for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run in its current form without these guys, so I really do appreciate their support. Thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to speaking to you next time.